Greetings again, in Jesus' name. Song service was especially touching to me this morning. We have a wonderful Savior, amazing grace. What do we do without it? If it's up to us, up to our works, what we can do, where are we at? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, the God of all comfort, the Father God, as we heard this morning already, the supplier of all our needs, the one who is always there, the one who gives us the blessing day by day. You have put this treasure in earthen vessels, and yes, as fathers, as mothers, we we ask, O oh God, that you would teach us how to shepherd our children and to hand them off to you to a better father, to one who loves them as we cannot and do not know how to. Lord, I ask that you would receive the glory and the honor do your name this morning. Pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Might just open your Bibles to the book of Jude. First and last chapter of the book of Jude. There's only one chapter. Back in the 1990s, there was a man named Nick Ripken who went to Somalia. Somalia at that time was, was under horrible war, blood, destruction, famine. There was warlords fighting each other, and it seemed that uh, all the bridges were out, all the roads had potholes in them, all the hospitals were destroyed, the airports were destroyed, people were starving, the crops were destroyed, and when they got all done, they destroyed what was already destroyed. Nick, Nick Ripken made it there and began distributing food. That was his goal, and to show the love of Christ, and uh, almost entirely a Muslim nation, when he went there, there was 200 Christians or so, by those who count such things. Things went on, and the rest of the world, the world community, decided that surely we can do something about this. And in the days of George W. Bush, they sent... Uh, 50,000 troops over there. The UN went over there. They put Nick in charge of distributing more food with UN money. Well, now the Somalian Muslim warlords decided the problem now is the Western world and the Christians. There wasn't very many Christians, but they began to kill those. Nick had a lot of friends. Some of them were Muslims and a few were Christians. One day a piece of paper came to his attention, and it was a list of all the people that worked for him, and a death fatwa was put against them. They were all to die. So he went to the warlord, and he, he there was, had put this out, and he said, why? They haven't done anything wrong. They're just passing out food, and some of them are Muslims. And they said, we want you to leave, and we know that if we kill you, There'll be repercussions. But if we kill your friends, you'll leave. Rick, Nick left. Disturbed, distraught, wondering where is the God? Where is God in this situation? And he set out on a world tour to find out how do people live in persecution? How can you be a Christian in a place where they will kill you right away? How can you preach the gospel knowing that the people, if they get converted and you baptize them, there is a death warrant on them immediately? How do you do that? And he traveled around the world to find the answer to that. The book of Jude will give us some answers there. A few days ago, a young man 
called me. He's about to get married and struggling with his father, a lot of difficult circumstances. I think there's a few in this room that would know a little about such things. He called and he outlined all these issues and all these problems. And what do I do, Brother Clint? Well, it was hard to answer. Maybe we can find the answers here in the book of Jude. Recently, my wife was talking to another, another woman. And with this man that I'm married to, with these circumstances, how can I be a Christian? How can I be a Christian under these circumstances? And my wife gave her the answer that we'll find in the book of Jude. Several years ago, I was in a church setting, and it just, there was things that were not right. How can I be a Christian in this setting? And we'll find some of the answers here in the book of Jude. How in difficult places, in difficult times, when everyone else is wrong, how can I be right? So if you have your Bible open to the book of Jude, we'll end up reading the entire book here. And I have been trying to decide how to deal with it. There's just a lot in here. And I would like to focus more at the end and then the beginning, but I would like you to listen. This is a circumstance that Jude was writing to a church, writing to a people. They had to figure out how to be Christians when there was false teachings and false doctrine and evil men and certain men amongst them. And maybe we can find God's answer that God gave to Jude to give to the people and maybe we can find some answers in our life. As we go through there, I'd like to point out a couple things just as a, just as a, an understanding of the book of Jude. I don't know that I've ever heard anything really preached out of Jude. Maybe you have just past week. I don't know. But you will find in the book of Jude three places where agape, agape love, is in it. It's in the second. If you like to write things in your Bible, you like a pen, it's a good, just make a note beside the second, the twelfth, and the twenty-first verse. That's agape love. That's godly love. That's the love that God has for us. It's unconditional love. It's the love we should have for our wife, for our husband, for our children, and for one another. Agape love. 2, 12, and 21. There is also agapitos. If I'm pronouncing anything like right, I don't, don't claim to know Greek. This is the very next word. One was G26. The other is G27. Your Strong's numbers. That's three times also. As in 3 and 17 and 20. And that is the love that God has for us. That is what we are to God. We are beloved. We are agape loved by God. You're going to find the word faith in here twice. One is in the third verse and it's the faith. And in the 20th verse it is your most holy faith. And we will be talking about that. The concept of being kept in the love of God, keeping ourselves in the love of God, preserved in God, is in there three times. Verse 1, 21, and 24. These are things to be watching for as we go through the book of June. Now let's begin to read, and I'll try not to comment a lot or we won't get through. But I will comment some. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There's Jude. He was actually the half-brother in the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's not the way he referred to himself. He referred to himself as the servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. Probably converted after the resurrection. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified... This is the church. This is the believers. These are the ones who have been called out. These are called out and separated to God, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. Mercy unto you, and peace, and love. There's that agape. Love be multiplied. 
Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Common salvation. That's the salvation that we all share. If you're a Christian, you're born again, whether you're a gospel-like Christian fellowship in Wisconsin or here, if you're a child of God, we share a common salvation. And that salvation is in Christ Jesus. Fourth verse. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a condition. How can I be a Christian when these, these kinds of things going on? They're preaching a false gospel. In 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19, it talks about those who promise liberty but are themselves as slaves of corruption. Fifth verse. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this. This is three condemnations. Five, six, and seven. Three condemnations. Three places where Jude reminds them that there is a judgment of God. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed. That's the first condemnations. The second one is the angels, sixth verse, who kept, kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. These people, these certain men have forgotten these things, but you are called to remember that even in 7th verse, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth. They, Sodom and Gomorrah, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers, these false prophets, these people not connected to reality, filthy dreamers, defile the flesh, despise dominion, speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when continuing with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. We'll get to that again if I don't forget. But even the devil was not railed against. Tenth verse. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they do know, what they know naturally as brute beasts, even the things that animals know, in those things, in the very, just the things that God has placed in all of us, in all of mankind, and even in the animals, even in those things, they corrupt themselves. Eleventh verse, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, run greedily after the heir of Balaam, and for reward, and perish in the gainsaying of Cory. That's three analogies. These are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, that's the third, that is the agape there, that feast of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit wither, without, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the root. They were dead both in the root and in the branch. We talk about you know, laying the axe to the root of the tree. These people were dead twice. They were not bearing fruit and they didn't even have roots. There's nothing there. They're empty. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. If you have ever seen Haiti and see after a storm and the waves bringing up the sludge and the filth and the cans and the bottles and the band-aids and the diapers, that's the raging waves of the sea faming out their own shame. The very live, just any time there's a disturbance, ugliness comes out. Fourteenth verse, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute 
judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's person and admiration because of advantage. They are partial, and they are trying to wheedle and flatter their way into advantage. But, beloved, and that's my title, but ye, beloved. You'll find that in the 20th verse also, except it does say ye, beloved, in the 20th verse, but, beloved. Who are the beloved? Who are the ones that Jude was speaking to? He was speaking to those in the first verse that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. He he couldn't do anything about those who are not in the Lord. He couldn't do anything about those who would not hear, those who are foaming out their own shame. But there are those in the church of Jesus Christ, those saved, sanctified, called, and preserved. You, I have a message for you, Jude says. But ye, beloved... Ye beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the Spirit. But ye beloved. So what would be the first thing that Jude has for the people? The beloved the called and the sanctified, the preserved. Ye beloved, remember what the apostles taught. Remember the Word of God. Read the Word of God. What does the Bible say? Ye beloved, if you want to live the Christian life in a world where things are not going well, when there is deceived people and deceivers and there's people walking after their own lust, when there's persecution. And when you're confused, you don't know which way to turn. Turn and remember to read the words of the apostles and remember that they warned you. Behold, Jesus said, I have told you before. He said about the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end times and the times when, when there would be even the very elect would be, dece- would be deceived if it were possible. See, I have told you before. You're still there. This has been prophesied from the very beginning. You're not left alone. You're not left orphans. You do have a God the Father. And yes, things look terrible. Yes, things look awful. But God is with you. And He knew all along this is what you were going to go through. You're not left orphans. So remember, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Get out the Bible and read understand, find out what the will of the Lord is for your life. The other thing that you're going to find is that as we go through our lives, we're going to find that there are those who are not called. They're not sanctified. They are deceivers. They are false prophets. And what we are called to do is recognize that they act like they are. They do not have the Spirit of God. We should not expect those who do not have the Spirit to act as if they do. We need to take comfort in that. To know that we are called to be that glove. We are called to preach the Gospel. Of course they act like that. They're not Christians. The other thing we will see as we go through is that it says here, that Moses does not bring, or, or Michael the Archangel does not bring a railing accusation even against the devil. So what are we to do when we have these horrible things? You know, Jude said, I was going to write to you just about a common salvation, but I saw false apostasy. I saw terrible things happening. I decided I must speak about it. What is our calling? Our calling is not to rail and to holler and to shout and and set up a radio station denouncing Muslims and gays and whatever else. Our job is to go to the words of the apostles 
You know, there's a concept, it's a theological term, it's called polemics. And polemics is a concept of preaching that is always railing and denouncing false doctrine. But ye beloved, but ye beloved, that is not what we are called to. 20th verse. But ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Okay, it's a terrible world. Yes, things are not like they ought to be. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, my wife, my husband, my son, my pastor, my life is not going right. But ye beloved, building up yourself in your most holy faith. Several years ago, I went through a quite a time in my life. I had to wrestle through, we went through a church collapse. And there was many things that I believed with all my heart. I had convictions on them. There was, I had built a life around certain truths that I believed were irrefutable and incontrovertible. They were wisdom and they were right. And everything that I believed came unglued and fell down around my life. I went through a, quite a struggle and it was shameful how long it took. But I found that in the end, everything that I believed had to be knocked down and put aside. And I had to go and put my faith not in doctrine, not in rightness, not in, in certain ways of doing things, not in a certain lifestyle or dress standard or mode of baptism, but in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That faith, your most holy faith is not any different than the faith. But it's when your, the faith becomes your faith. When all the body of, of teaching in the Bible and everything you know about Jesus Christ and your sinfulness and God's capable, His ableness to save your soul and how that you cannot have any part in that. When you come to know all those things, that is the faith. But when that, the faith becomes your most holy faith, my most holy faith, salvation begins in your life. And that's what I found in those days. But ye beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Ghost. There's a parallel verse, and I'll just read it. You can turn to it if you like, or make a note beside your Bible. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according. That's an important word. According. That means it's lined up with the will of God. Ephesians 6.18 Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And James 4 would be the opposite. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it on your lust. That is praying in the flesh. We are not called to pray in the flesh, but we are called to pray in the Spirit. But how? What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? I spent some time on that and I don't know if I have the defining answer to that. But I would start out by saying it's not a method. There's some that would say, I, we have a brother in our fellowship that spent some time in the charismatics, Pentecostal churches, and, and I ask him, what do you think it means to pray in the Spirit? And I could just see his drawing back. It's not about tongues praying. It's not in some method of praying. 
But I have become convinced that it is in the being prayer. It is deep down inside of our being, knowing that God is He's rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Knowing that deep inside of ourselves, without question, is maybe just faith. Maybe we could say that's what it is. But it's essentially, it is going to God and saying, God, I know You're real. I know that You love me. I know that You answer prayers. I know that that if I pray with the things that are according to Your will, that You hear me, You answer me, and we pray. And sometimes we just groan. Sometimes we ask the Holy Spirit to pray for us. We don't know what to say. Even Jesus groaned in the Spirit at one point. It is knowing the Word of God. Knowing the mind and the heart and the Spirit of God. So read the Bible. You cannot pray in the Spirit if you do not have the Word of God etched into your mind. You know, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? What does it mean to love God in the Spirit? I spoke yesterday a little bit about being. Years ago, I was listening to a man recount his marriage. He was, had kind of come out on the other side, but he said, you know, I gave her flowers. She just looked at me. I took her out to eat. No response. I told her she was pretty. It didn't do any good. I said, what do I do? And she said, it's not from your heart. You don't really love me. You're just going through the motions. You're a mechanic. You're doing stuff, but you're not there. You're not with me. He stopped everything he was doing. He went to his pastor and he said, what do I do? And he said, you act as if you're not married. And you begin to date your wife. You just, you just keep your distance. And you just, you just woo her until you find in your heart that you love her. And she will love you in return. So he set out to do that. And eventually, that's exactly what happened. He stopped doing and he sought the being. You know, we do prayer and we do prayer and we do prayer. And all of us can probably testify, sometimes we just do it. But other times we make connection. We realize that we are having a two-way communication. God is speaking to us and we are speaking to God. We have found that place of praying in the Spirit. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking it's a method. Get your heart right with God. It's one of God's means of grace. I'm going to skip. Well, no, we won't skip that. Just keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. A while back, I... I was talking to a man who used to be a part of the plain circles, grew up in the plain circles, was in them for several years. And he was trying to explain to me why he's no longer in the plain circles. He said, you know, if you sin, you think God is frowning at you. You think that God hates you. You think that you're dirt and scum and you're, nobody loves you anymore. I listened, and, and I was just puzzled. I said, that's not the God I, I serve. That's not the God that I know. He said, well, that's, that's what I grew up thinking it was. And I said, no. I said, the God that we serve is a God whose face is always towards us. He's always smiling upon us. His love is like the sunshine and it's always there. But when we sin, we've stepped into the shadows. We're in the darkness now. We're away from the sunshine of God's love. God so loved the world. God so loved the whole world. But it's whosoever believeth in Him. There is a whole world and there's the whosoever. And we seek to be in the whosoever. We seek to step out of the shadows and into the sunlight 
of God's love. I said all that to him and a few other things. He said, that's not the way I remember it. I believe that's the God we serve. Yes, we sin. Yes, we disappoint Him. But He doesn't turn His back on us and say, well, you're done now. He says, come to Me. Just come back. There's, Father's house is always open. And He comes running to greet us. He's not, he doesn't leave us in the pig pen. He calls us away from the pig pen. I believe there's a lesson in that for our children, fathers and mothers. Our children need to know that there is a loving father and a loving mother in the home. I've said it a lot of times, and I, I don't know if I've said it to those in this room or not. But the primary child-raising philosophy, I don't care what book you read, the most important thing, I believe, and I think I can say this with some authority, and conviction and experience. If you want to raise a godly family, fathers and mothers, you build a relationship with your children and they know they are loved. They know they are appreciated. They know they are agape. You make sure they know that. You ask them. And you make sure you get an answer that is real and right and good. You know that they know that they are loved. They have a relationship and there's a bond. And when that is broken, you know what it's like to have your relationship with the Heavenly Father broken. You want it back, do you not? Your children, if you have built that relationship with your children, they want to keep it. They find themselves and that's been broken. That doesn't mean they're rejected. That don't mean they're no longer a son. That don't mean they're no longer loved. It just simply means there's a gap. There's been a barrier. And all that has to happen is come back to Papa. That is God's call to us. And it's our call upon our lives to our children. Keep yourself out of the shadows and in the love of God. And on some... I'll get back to the mercy. And on some, have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. I don't know what that means altogether. But I do know that there are those in our fellowship and and Larry and Elvin, I'm sure you have them in your fellowship. What do you do? There are some who seem to always struggle. There are some who, you know, these false teachers that we just read about, they were convincing some. There were the propagators. There were the ones who promoted the false teaching. And I believe that those just needed to be treated like it says in, in 2 John. They should not even be bid into the house or bid God speed. There should just be a casting out. But there is those who wrestle with false teaching. There's those who believe lies. Are there not? I have believed lies in my past. And He's saying to us, He's saying to the beloved, He's saying to those that are called and sanctified, He's saying to them, have compassion. Make a difference. There's others who are almost over the brink. Reach out, grab. You know, sometimes we wonder as pastors, how far do we go? How many phone calls do we make? How often do we go and ask what we can do to help? How much do we chase them down? But it says here to snatch. Save with fear. Pulling them out of the fire. Hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. There's a call upon the beloved to look at those who are almost over the edge. And I don't know the answer to that. I've worked with people 
prayed with people. You just wonder how to get them out of that fire. But I do know that I've learned to hate those garments. I hate them. And I hate the devil that has caused so much grief. Looking for the mercy, 21st verse. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That mercy, I don't know what else to call it except that that is when the Lord comes again with His 10,000 of His saints. That's when God comes back and makes things right. You know, there is a judgment day coming. There is a judgment day and we need not fear it. You know, you go to the book of Psalms, you'll find the concept of judgment several times. And in Job, he talks about, if I could just have my day in court, if I could just go to judgment. In the Psalms, it speaks about judgment. There's going to come a day when the wrongs will be righted. The cults will be shown to be cults. The people who have abused people, it will come out and the light will be shouted from the housetops. I have been abused. I have been mistreated. I have been lied to. But God will make it right. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the 24th verse, to Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. We need not fear judgment day, brothers and sisters. If you are in the Lord, you are in Christ. You have joy awaiting you. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We can, you know, there's going to be those who call for the rocks and the hills to fall upon them, but we're not going to be the ones who do that. We're going to look up for redemption draws nigh. We have someone who is able to keep us from falling. He is able to present us faultless before His throne with exceeding glory. He is an able God. And His ability is in our lives. Christ Jesus is in us praying in the Spirit. There are those that says they have not the Spirit. We just read that. And they are the apostate ones. We are not. We are the beloved. If you are in Christ, if I am in Christ, we are beloved and we have the Spirit. And the Spirit is able to keep us from falling. He is able to present us faultless. In Colossians 1.22, a very similar verse says about the same thing. Oh, that's a beautiful... I love Colossians. 1, 21 and 23. And you, that's who we are, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Amen. How does He present us faultless? It's through the blood of Jesus Christ because He died and because He rose again and because we, by faith, died with Him and by faith rose with Him and by faith have new life in Him. We, He is able to present us faultless before His throne. To the only wise God, our Savior. I spent some time on that verse. That's an interesting verse. It's translated a lot of different ways, and the Greek's a little complicated. But the only wise God saved us through Christ. Be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. If we could get a glimpse of our holy God. If we could get a glimpse of our powerful God. Recently I heard about a man who had fallen desperately into desperate sin. And the church didn't know what to do hardly. They ended up excommunicating him. They sent him to a ministry. And I was fascinated. As I listened to one of the people from that church talk to me about it, he said, you know, they don't do a lot of counseling there. 
They try to get one thing through to these people who are trapped in the clutches of sin. They try to get the holiness of an all-powerful God who loved them and saved them to get that picture in their mind to know that they are fallen, they are sinners, and there is a holiness that sin cannot enter into. That's all they do. And they spend nine months with these, these people just getting them to see the holiness of a holy God. To the only wise God, our Savior. So how, how holy, how powerful is He? What can we do when the world is not working like it ought to? You have a little testimony in my life. For the last several years, I've had a lot of pulpit time. And as the year preceded my ordination, it became more and more aware that I was going to have to deal with a problem. One of the things that I struggled with for many years back in preaching, somewhere throughout my preparation, sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning on Saturday night, there would be this overwhelming sense of absolute futility. It's a waste of time. Apostle Paul called it the foolishness of preaching. And why preach? Nobody listens. Nobody cares. In the end, everybody goes home and forgets about it. Why go to all the bother? And I would just, I would just get almost burdened by this thing. Usually by Sunday morning, I would got over it and I rebuked the devil and I'd pray. But it came up again and again. Well, as the ordination rolled around and I wrestled through some things, God took me to the 37th chapter of Ezekiel. I feel like God was telling me something about His glory and about His power and about our place in it. God took Ezekiel to the Valley of Dry Bones. You're familiar with it. You've heard the story many times. But I saw something different that day when God took me there. God said to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel said, thou knowest. He said, prophesy to the bones. Preach to the bones. What foolishness. How silly. Why was God calling Ezekiel to preach to bones? I don't know. I don't understand why God makes us co-workers and co-laborers in His work. Why didn't God tell Ezekiel, hey, stand up on this rock, I've got something I want to show you. I'm going to make these bones come to life. You just stand back and, and look at my awesome power. But that's not what He did. He said, preach to the bones, Ezekiel. And the bones come together. And the flesh came on the bones, and the sinews came on the bone, and there was bodies lying there. But they weren't alive. And so then Ezekiel was told to do another foolish thing. You know, the Holy Spirit can come and make one alive. Why did God need Ezekiel? I don't think God needs Ezekiel, but somehow and for some reason, God calls us. And He said to Ezekiel, preach to the wind. Preach to the four winds. So Ezekiel preached to the four winds. Now I would like to ask you a question. When the life came to those bodies, what part did Ezekiel have in it? Did Ezekiel put the life in those bodies? Did Ezekiel put the bones together? Did Ezekiel put the sinews and the bodies together? Did he breathe life into them? Did they stand up on Ezekiel's power? No. God's power. God is holy. The only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power. When Ezekiel saw that great army standing there breathing, could Ezekiel say, oh, look what I did. No, he just said, look at what God has done. And that is the message that God gave me. And I have found, at least for now, victory in that area. God calls us to be His co-laborers with exceeding joy. We can look to our God. We need not fear Him. 
This shining light of His love is shining down upon us continuously. So what happened to Nick Ripkin? Well, he went to Saudi Arabia, he went to Russia, he went to East Germany, he went to Cambodia, he went to many countries and asked the same questions. How do you survive? How can you be a Christian in such horrible circumstances? His faith was shattered. Who is this God that don't answer prayers? Who is this God who doesn't... Just everything looks like the devil always wins. And I read a book that he wrote, and this is my gleanings. The only way Nick Ripkin discovered for persecution to end is for people to stop being Christians. Persecution stops immediately when there is no faith and no witness. So what did Jude call us to? Beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is there another answer? The second thing, Nick never heard a believer who suffered under persecution ask for prayer that the persecution would cease, but only that prayer would be made, they would be faithful and obedient through persecution and suffering. But ye, beloved, be faithful. He discovered that the freedom to believe and witness for Christ has nothing to do with civil and political rights that might or might not be present. They and you and I are just as free to share Jesus today in an Islamic, a Buddhist, or a Hindu country, or a communist country, as you are in America. It is not a matter of political freedom. It is a matter of obedience. Ye, beloved, be obedient. The freedom to witness for Christ is the same in this country as in a persecuted country. The freedom is exactly the same. The consequences are different. But ye, beloved, are you willing to witness for Christ no matter your circumstances? No matter what the consequences? Are you willing? Are you able? Will you stand for Jesus, ye beloved? So I told that young man who called me about his father causing difficulties before the wedding. I said, young man, if you're a Christian and the Spirit of God is moving in your life, you have the opportunity to show grace and love and mercy and wisdom and kindness and stability that you have never shown by your Father. That is your opportunity. But ye, beloved, you can live the Christian life and it doesn't matter how your father is treating you. My wife told that wife who was complaining about her husband, but you can be a Christian. You can be an example. You can live for the Lord. You can win Him by your holy conversation. Not in a negative way, just by not being too terrible, bad to live with, but by being a positive influence for Christ. You can have a winning influence on your husband. And I found that God was able. If I was willing, in that church circumstance I was in, I was stuck there for many more years than I enjoyed. But every time I got ready to pack up the U-Haul and leave, God said, you haven't learned to love these people yet. You have not learned what I wanted you to learn yet. But ye, beloved, He was saying to me, when you learn to know who I am, and when you learn to extend the grace that I have given to you, to your brothers, then you can go. And I am ashamed to say how long it was.
So no matter your circumstances, whether you're struggling with homeschooling, you wonder, how can I do it? I am such, under such stress financially. My children act so badly. I am, just don't like my job. I don't like the state I'm in. I'm struggling with some of the, the baggage from my growing up years. But ye, beloved. The Apostle Jude says to you that you are called and you are sanctified. You are preserved in Christ Jesus. And you can build yourself up on your most holy faith. You can pray in the Holy Ghost. You can keep yourself in the shining love of God. And you can look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. There is a judgment day a-coming. We don't need to fear. We are not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. That is something we need to constantly remember. Sometimes we get overwhelmed with today. We get overwhelmed with our circumstances now. But God is saying, no, look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming again. We're not in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying, but we are in the land of the dying. And we're going to the land of the truly living. We have an eternity ahead of us. And what we're going through now doesn't really matter, actually. It is a test. We're, that's all life really is, is a test. Will you be faithful no matter what? Will you live for me no matter who is in your life? No matter who is deceiving you? No matter your circumstances? Will you live for me? It is a test and God calls you and He loves you. He loves me. He wants us to go on with Him. But ye beloved, but ye beloved, no matter what. 